Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. We all know that there is something extraordinary about music. Music is unusually expressive. Music can be eloquent without words, instruments, like a saxophone or a guitar or a piano or a flute. They can communicate without words. Music with words can communicate to us more vividly and more forcefully than almost anything else. Every now and then I meet somebody who says, I'm not a music person. I'm not a music person in the sense that I can't do it, but I'm a music person in the sense that I feel it and I love it. Why is music so forceful and so uniquely powerful to to get us in the heart? Those who don't believe in God and those who believe that we are just protoplasm, evolutionary biologists, they can't really explain beauty They can't explain beauty in any form, much less beauty in musical form. The best they can do is relate it somehow to the survival of the fittest, a sort of utilitarianism. Last week, I read an article by an atheist evolutionary biologist who tried to explain why music feels so transcendent. And the best that he could do was to come up with some theory that as a species, we benefit from pattern recognition. And so music with its movement of melody can help us learn how to predict patterns and recognize them which would further our cause for surviving in the rat race of the survival of the fittest. But we know that music is much, much more than that. There's a sort of melancholy scene in uh, Steve Jobs' biography where, uh, of all people, Yo-Yo Ma is at his house playing his uh, 1733 Stradivarius. And after the music ends, Steve Jobs, with tears in his eyes, says something like, I've never really understood the arguments for the existence of God, but when I hear music like that, I lean toward them. The famous conductor Leonard Bernstein in his book describes a conversation that he had and he describes the conversation this way. Uh, Leonard Bernstein was saying that when you listen to fine music, you get the feeling that whatever note succeeded the last one is the only possible note that could happen in the universe in that instant. Bernstein says, it makes you know that one thing is right in the world. There's something that checks through. There's something that follows its own law consistently. There's one thing we can trust and that won't let us down. And in his recounting of this story, his conversation partner surprised him by replying to him, that almost sounds like you're describing God. And Bernstein says something like, I didn't think about it like that, but I suppose it kind of does. God gives us music. And our text today in Isaiah 12 is a song 
What is so fascinating to me is that this text in Isaiah 12 is a song that is patterned after what is called the first song in the Bible, which is in Exodus chapter 15. And what's also fascinating to me in the beautiful way God put together the Bible is that this song in Isaiah 12, which is patterned after Exodus 15, is then repeated in the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. The first song and the last song show us what a beautiful book the Bible is, and it shows us that the theme of the Bible is not just the salvation of men and women, though without that we'd be lost. The theme of the Bible is how a holy God saves unholy men and women by his glory and for his grace. And the thing is, this song in Isaiah 12, it was sung by the Israelites, God's, so to speak, first people, in Exodus chapter 15. And Revelation says that this song will be sung by all of the redeemed when we get to the end. So as we read Isaiah 12, think about this church. As we read Isaiah 12, you are listening to the echo of your voice from the future. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have been baptized in his blood, this is the song that you will sing one day when all the wrongs are made right and when the last bullet flies and when all the swords are beaten into plowshares. This is the song that you'll sing. So are we reading some ancient text? Yes, we are. But are we reading an echo of our own full-throated voices from the future? And the answer is yes, we are. That's what this is. We're going to read Isaiah 12, and then we will read Exodus 15. And Exodus is the second book in the Bible. It just goes Genesis, then Exodus. And then we'll read a tiny bit from the last book of the Bible in Revelation 15. We'll begin our reading in Isaiah 12. And uh, we don't always do this, but let's stand for the reading of Scripture. Go ahead and stand, and we'll read Isaiah 12 and Exodus 15 and then Revelation 15. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. And I'd ask you to turn back to Exodus 15, because Isaiah 12, verse 2, quotes Exodus 15, uh, also verse 2. Exodus 15, beginning in verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. 
saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him, my Father's God. I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow the adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up. The Blood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. Oh, the enemy said, I'll pursue, I'll overtake, I'll divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I'll draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. But you blew with your wind and the sea covered them and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. And from Exodus 15, if you turn to the last book of the Bible, in Revelation 15, we'll just read the first four verses of Revelation 15, because Exodus 15 and uh, Isaiah 12 are quoted again in Revelation 15, verse 4, or verses 3 and 4. Revelation 15, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is the beautiful word of the living God. You may be seated. What is this singing going to sound like in the end? Revelation 14 gives us a clue when it says in Revelation 14, I heard a loud voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many thunders. Before amplification, before microphones like this and speakers like the ones hung around this room, they described the loudest sound in the world like a massive waterfall, which is not a bad description. You ever been around, a, not a little waterfall. You ever been around a massive waterfall? You're not talking to anybody. You ever been around thunder? Not from a long way away, but the thunder like right on top of you. It moves your teeth. It's so loud. That's what this song is going to sound like. And in that day, we'll praise God for the first exodus when he threw the horse and its rider into the sea by the blast of his nostrils. But that praise will be superseded by the praise for the new exodus, which is his vanquishing all of the armies of the great harlot Babylon in the book of Revelation and how he saves us and rescues us from our sin by the blood of the lamb. So this is a song of salvation. And the way it begins in Exodus 12, verse 1, is 
is, I would submit to you, the only way that it can begin. Verse 1 has to be verse 1. Because it says, you will say in that day, I will give you thanks, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. The first note in the song is a note of forgiveness found, of anger deflected or angled away from me, of restoration received. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger has turned away that you might comfort me. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Don't miss the, the all-important but invisible background. When I'm asking you to count your blessings, hello, church, the first blessing is there is a you still here to count your blessings. For God's anger has turned away and your heart still beats. You still breathe. Because don't be angry at me for saying this. It is God who says this. And if you're angry that I say this, it's only more evidence that you deserve this. What I need to say is your sentence is death. You don't deserve to live. You deserve to die. That's the judgment that you deserve. And not only physical death, but eternal death in the second death, hell. And that you are still here and not there is the blessing behind all the blessings. God could have squashed me like a bug and he would have needed to apologize to no one. I will give you thanks, O oh Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Isaiah 12 verse 1 reminds me of one of my favorite songs in scripture, which is Psalm 103. It may be where we get that little line, count your blessings from, because Psalm 103 is a recounting of all the blessings. He says in verse 1, bless the Lord. He says in verse 1 of Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. He says in Psalm 103, verse 2, forget not all of his benefits. Thus, he wants to count the blessings just the same way that you give a list to your family member who's going to the store for you and you say, don't forget anything on the list and please don't forget the strawberry ice cream. When he says in Psalm 103 verses 1 and 2, bless the Lord, leave nothing off the list, the thing he says, don't forget the most, see it? Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity. He's going to go on to say that he separates from us from our sin. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west. This is the great blessing that our sin has been forgiven. So this song of salvation in Isaiah chapter 12 shows us at least five glorious truths about salvation. They are poetically and prophetically revealed here. They are revealed far more didactically and systematically in the epistles of Paul in the New Testament. But they are revealed here nonetheless in a very moving poetic expression. And I could show you at least five of them. 
in Isaiah chapter 12. The first one has to do with the word anger because you see it in verse one. You will say in that day, I will give you thanks, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. Point number one about salvation is simply this. God is angry about sin. God is angry about sin. The Bible says God is love. We believe and confess that God is love. But as a church, don't miss this because there are churches that miss this all the time and they spiral into heresy. The fact that God is love does not mitigate the fact that in his love, he is righteously and justly wrathful against all sin. God's angry with sin. And sin is sin because God is against it. Not only is it true, but it's tear-inducingly, heartbreakingly true that your sin has a massive effect on the people around you. How much of my time as a pastor is spent helping one church member deal with the fallout that another church member has sinned against them. And yet, though that is true, and it matters, deeper and more fundamental than that is that the bloodiest stain of sin and the vilest reality about sin is that sin angers God. though you were angry with me. Sometimes in church, we want to ask somebody, do you love God? You ever switch that question around? What if your greatest problem isn't whether or not you will decide to love God? Maybe it's flat-footed to, to put it this way, and maybe it bowls you over, but what if your biggest problem isn't whether you will love God? What if your biggest problem is, will God love you? Because you've stabbed him in the back. Will God love you? Because he gave you a list to take to the store and you crumpled the thing and threw it behind your back. You've broken his law pillar post. Your greatest problem is, will God love you? Will God's anger be turned away from you? God in his judgment and his wrath should righteously be against you. I do want to ask you if you'll love God, but maybe you need to sit and think about the fact, will God love you? You've been disobedient and dishonest and disloyal. You are God's cheating spouse. I am. God's cheating spouse. How hot were the tears that my infidelity brought to my Savior's eyes? And will God take his cheating spouse back? Will God say to you, I forgive you. I love you still. This is like the opening chord that sets this song, the song that we will sing forever. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, 
your anger turned away. That's the second truth about salvation. If the first truth was about anger, the second truth surrounds that word away. And the truth is this, God's anger can turn away. God's anger can turn away. Here in Isaiah 12, this is the truth of salvation by substitution, by propitiation, by substitutionary atonement, by anger being turned away. And this is that truth expressed in one little line of this psalm. We've already seen a hint of it, a foreshadow of it in the prophet's own call. If you remember Isaiah chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And then in Isaiah 12, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. And perhaps your mind already is going to Isaiah's most famous song of all, the song of the suffering servant, where in Isaiah 53, verses 4, 5, and 6, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God's anger can turn away. And here's the principal truth about salvation to remember. Only God can turn away the wrath of God. Human religion cannot turn away the wrath of God. Human, I'll try better the next time, God. Give me a second chance. Can't turn away the wrath of God. Only God can turn away the anger of God. It's been said that Isaiah is the Romans of the Old Testament, and I think that's about right. I like that. Perhaps in the book of Romans, more than in any other epistle, all the threads of historical, uh, the historical narrative, like Abraham and everything that happened in the Old Testament, the threads of historical narrative, the threads of the character of God, his wrath, his mercy, his love, his electing purpose, the threads of when we cursed, when he cursed the earth because of sin, how is that curse, that groaning curse undone? All of those threads come together in the book of Romans like perhaps nowhere else. And Isaiah has been called the Romans of the Old Testament because we do see the awesome holiness of God. And we see the sinfulness of sin. Out the, out the gate, Isaiah chapter 1 is, is one of the darkest depictions of the depravity of sin that's found in the entire Old Testament canon. We see the awesome holiness of God, we see the sinfulness of sin, and we see the plan of salvation that is outworked from the character of God. How can God be just and justify the unrighteous? How can God uphold the covenant of marriage and yet freely forgive adulterers? Only by the suffering servant. Propitiation, substitutionary atonement, 
The theological word is substitutionary atonement. The non-theological expression that we can all say is Jesus in my place. God's anger turns away. The third truth about salvation, you could summarize it with the word God, and we could say it like this. The third truth about salvation is God is our salvation. God is our salvation. That's what it says in verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Twice it says there, God is my salvation. Salvation is one way of saying who God is. God could be standing before us as judge, but God is standing before us as Savior. He is love. He is saving, redeeming love. He is the God of hesed, un, unbreakable loving kindness. We see this again in verse 6, the climactic crescendo of the song. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. In your midst, you see that? God is in your midst as the Holy One of Israel. And what he is explaining there, or what rather he is extolling there, is God could be in your midst with his sword pulled out from the sheath on his thigh, wreaking blood havoc on all those who have sinned against him. And he would be righteous and just to do so. But God is in your midst, not as judge and executioner. God is in your midst as forgiving spouse who says, I forgive you. I don't hold it against you. Come into my arms. God is our salvation. And so no insult to the flannel graphs that I got to see when I was a little kid, but I think maybe I was given the wrong answer to the question, what do we get when we get to heaven? I know we get jewels. I know we get crowns. I know we get streets of gold. We get God. We get God. I, I think I mean this. I want to be the kind of man who means this. Take it all. Just give me Jesus. If I get him, what else matters? God is our salvation. That's the third truth. The fourth truth summarized in a word is faith, or the word that uh, Isaiah uses is the word trust in verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. Salvation is ours through trust, through faith. God's anger can only be turned away by God, not by human works. Therefore, salvation can only be received by faith. Don't get confused about what faith is. When it comes to salvation, faith means this. Faith means I am trusting in the work of another. And go ahead and capitalize the A on the another. Faith is I am trusting in the work of another. That's the only way to be saved. I can't trust in my own works. I have to trust in the work of another. Jesus, the Messiah, the suffering servant. 
We are saved not by trusting our works, but we are saved by trusting in the work of another in our place on our behalf. Romans 3 is very, very explicit about this. Romans 4 and 5 are very explicit about this. Ephesians 2, by grace we're saved through faith. That's the gift of God, not a work. Faith itself is not a work, lest anyone should boast. So the fourth truth about salvation is that salvation is ours through trust. Salvation is ours by faith. Salvation is ours through trust. Salvation is ours by faith. And there's one more word about salvation. The fifth word about salvation has to do with mission. And here is from verses 3 and 4 and 5. With joy, you'll draw water from the wells of salvation, and you'll say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, and then you see verse 5, let this be made known in all the earth. The fifth truth about salvation is that salvation moves us to mission. Salvation moves us to mission. As soon as I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, I want to make and train more disciples of Jesus. Who will then make and train more disciples of Jesus? Salvation moves us to mission. Verse 3, once you've tasted the water from the well of salvation, well, you want to share that water with everybody around. If you have, let me put it in an if-then. If you have no desire to share salvation with others, then there is little evidence that salvation is real in your own life. If you have no desire to share salvation with others, then there's little evidence that that salvation has really been received by you yourself. Are you still the same miserly, greedy person that you were before? You still the same fear of man, the biggest thing to me is what people think of me kind of person you were before? Well, those things change when God breaks through with redeeming love. Salvation moves us to mission, to tell others. There's another wonderful truth that we can say about salvation, and that is that the song of salvation leads to satisfaction and joy. The song of salvation leads to satisfaction and joy. And I draw this mostly from verse 3, this wonderful image of the well of salvation from which we can draw the water of joy perpetually, never-ending, ever-green, ever-flourishing. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you'll say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make his deeds known among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. In verse 3, this image of the well of water is taken from Exodus 17. Song of Moses, Exodus 15, God's people are redeemed, but then they complain that they don't have any water, and God miraculously gives them a well in the middle of a desert where there would be no well in Exodus chapter 17. And that picture of God providing a well, oh, it runs throughout Scripture. Isaiah makes much of this image of the well that springs and gushes forth with joy. Listen to Isaiah 35, verses 6 and 7. 
It says in Isaiah 35, verses 6 and 7, The lame shall leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness like streams in the desert, and the burning sand becomes a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. Isaiah uh, uh, rills off of, riffs off of this again in Isaiah 41, verse 17. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none, when their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. And we see this image of the well and of water again in Isaiah 51. Verse 3, for the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. I won't turn there, but I would encourage you to mark down Psalm 36 and Psalm 63 and bask in those great descriptions of God providing water to a thirsty people. Psalm 36, Psalm 63, and the time has gone away from me from showing you how Jesus himself expands on this in John chapter 4 and John chapter 7. Church, what I want you to hear from the song, and you see how verse 2 says God is our salvation. You see how verse 2 says we will not be afraid and then you see how verse 3 says, with joy we draw water from the wells of salvation. Church, I want to say this to you. You can fight fear by trusting God for salvation. You can fight fear by trusting God for salvation. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So church, get this. And then work it through in your experience. You can fight fear with faith. You fight fear by trusting God. And then what happens is verse 3. What happens when you fight fear with faith and you really trust God, this is what happens. Faith replaces fear with joy. Get it. I know it may not yet be true in your experience, but get it, and it can be. When you really trust God for salvation, faith replaces fear with joy. With joy. Know this. And church, never forget it. Faith in a sovereign God is the supreme remedy against fear. And when you know that God is God, and when you know that he has forgiven you, then faith can be replaced with joy in salvation. And so take verse 3 as an imperative or a command. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. It wouldn't surprise you today if I gave you this imperative command. You've been sinning. Repent of your sin. This is perhaps the easiest command to understand when God or God's prophet says, you've been disobeying. Turn around and obey. We expect the command to repent. But did you know that to rejoice is also a command? The living God through his prophet says, you ain't been rejoicing. You better repent and start rejoicing today, he says today. Rejoice in the Lord is a command. 
I, don't, I can't count up how many times in the Old Testament and New Testament rejoicing is a command. Which, I can hear your objections, though you're not saying them because I can read your thoughts. Which means joy is neither an emotion nor is joy a response to how well things are going at the moment. Those are the two easiest objections and we have to roll over them. Joy is not an emotion, purely. may have an emotional aspect to it, but it's not, it's not emotion 100%. And joy isn't a mere response to whether things are going good or bad. What is joy? Joy is verses two and three. Joy is uh, the satisfaction of finding in God all that I have been looking for. That's what joy is. Joy is the satisfaction, the security, the rejoicing, the rest of finding in God all that I'm looking for. Joy is the satisfied security that God is enough for me. Joy is being able to say, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. God's my strength. God's my song. God's my salvation. And so with joy, I draw water from God all my days. Not only are you commanded to repent and quit your nasty sinning, you are commanded to repent of your refusal to rejoice. Here and now, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is resurrected from the dead, and by the power of his Holy Spirit, Racine Bible Church, I command you, be so satisfied in God that you rejoice. No matter what. Student, middle schooler, high schooler, who, student who is now living with quote-unquote Christian parents who exasperate you, who manifest hypocrisy around you. Don't let that steal your joy. Wife who is in a marriage that's difficult and dry, husband who's in a marriage that is difficult and dry, rejoice in the Lord God. Trust in him and be not afraid, and he will be to you a strength and a song. Ministry leader who is facing cranky sheep who bite and draw blood more like wolves than like sheep. Ministry leader, rejoice in God. Joy is not merely an emotion and it's not merely a response to the circumstances that I find myself in. Joy is found in God and in God alone, ultimately. Why do we rejoice? Because when we get salvation, we get God. And I would just loop back again to that, to that last, uh, to verse two, which says twice, God is my salvation. And to that sweet last verse in verse six, shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. The best songs uh, give us a pattern recognition where the music does something and then in the end it just resolves and there can't, there, like there couldn't, like Bernstein said, there can't be any other sound in the universe but that note that should be there. Show you that in 60 seconds or less from the story of the Bible before we sinned, before we sinned, 
God was in our midst. My mother, Eve, and my father, Adam, they walked with God in the cool of the garden. No barrier, no separation. And when we are ultimately saved, not in the first Exodus and not even in the New Testament era, but what the book of Revelation says is that when we are finally and fully and ultimately saved, this is what happens. Listen, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and I saw the holy city come down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying this, listen to what the voice says when everything ends. Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell in the midst of them. They will be his people and God himself will be their God and he will wipe every tear from their eye. Revelation 21, verses one through five. The whole Bible story is that we were with God. We separated ourselves from him and through his own turning away of his own anger, we now can dwell with him again. And this is the greatest song in the world. To see how we ruined everything and to see how God restored it at such a cost to himself of his own son? Rescue and redemption by such a savior for such a people and to bring us to such an end that God would dwell with us. Church, when you hear this song of Isaiah 12, you are listening to your own voice echoing toward you from the future where you're headed but you're not there yet. Let that truth and that joy Fill your life to overflowing, even today. Let's pray. Living God, as we bow our heads before you, we bow our hearts before you. We ask that you would fill us. We turn away from sin. We turn away from the broken cisterns that can hold no water. And we come to you in prayer that we might rejoice in the well of your salvation now and forevermore. Lord, give us a song to sing. Give us faith to believe. And oh, give us joy to share with others. In Jesus' name, amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.